Hey everyone, this is Christ Presbyterian Church in New Haven with CPC Podcasts, and you're listening to The Sunday Sermon. Today's Old Testament reading is from Psalm, chapter 13, verses 1 through 6. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my eternity be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Lift up my eyes, lest I sleep that sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Our New Testament reading is Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated, excuse me, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I am Pastor Jerry Arnellis, and we are in our second um, installation of our Advent series through the Psalms. Um, And I must say, as I said in a previous sermon, that I must apologize. We just sang this great, wonderful song that lifted our spirits, and then we begin with the psalm, How Long? But it's necessary. It's necessary, and I hope to show you why. So with that being said, let's, let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we ask that you draw near to us now, that you be with the preaching of your word, that you be with the listening to your word, Lord. But may it stir us up. May, you, may your son be known. May he be glorified. In Christ's name, amen. So I, a question. How do you pray when life is chaotic, uncertain, and unfair, and dangerously close to numbing? I would assume you probably pray to God. If you're a believer in here, you probably pray to God and you ask for help. You ask for help either to take away the circumstances that's causing your distress, your anguish, or at least to strengthen you to handle it, right? Just give me the strength or take it away. And I'm sure you've probably sat on your front porch at night looking up at the night star crying out to God in some form, in some fashion, why is this happening to me? Why? Will it ever change? Well, is it any wonder that 
in the psalm, one of the most common questions to come from the mouths of God's people is this very question, how long, O Lord? And maybe you've cried that exact phrase in your anguish. In some form or some fashion, you've cried out the cry, how long, O Lord? Only to be met with what seems like God's silence. Well, I have some bad news. And I do mean that because I don't think any of us in here want to hear this. As it turns out, we have a God for whom punctuality is not a virtue. Which means to live faithfully as a believer in a chaotic and unfair world, the question how long is part and parcel of the Christian experience. That's the bad news, but there is good news. I want to give you the good news up front, just in case you fall asleep in the middle. (laughs) Just in case. The good news is that this silence isn't cruelty or indifference. How do I know that? Because of how Psalm 13 ends and how the gospel of Christ begins. Psalm 13 ends with God, with trusting God's steadfast love and a song in response to his abundant mercy. How does the gospel begin? It begins with the God of mercy himself coming down into this world and experiencing its chaos and its anguish. He personally tasted suffering to the fullest extent, even experiencing cosmic rejection, even experiencing the silence from his father. But see, the good, gets, the good news gets better. The God who suffered for sins on the cross also rose from the grave. And the cross and the resurrection changed everything. We may not know how, why he takes so long to come to our aid or why he allows for suffering to continue or why it can seem so random. But at least we know what it's not. It cannot be that it's indifferent, that he's indifferent. Because he is stubbornly faithful and committed to our ultimate happiness. And it promises that anguish and suffering will not have the last word. That's what the cross and resurrection show us. Now I said I've given you that at the beginning. Why? Because at least you get the good news right at the front. At least you get it right at the front. We're about to enter into a, a pretty dark psalm. It ends in triumph, but I wanted to give you the good news up at the front. But more to the point, because this psalm is framed by the name Yahweh, it begins and ends with reference to the Lord. And you need to hear this. We saints need to hear this. Whatever you're going through this Advent season, you need to hear whatever wounds you bear. God is firmly committed to you. His steadfast love brought you to him and his steadfast love will keep you. And what the world holds as ludicrous, the Christian holds as very precious. And it is this, that God, too, has wounds. So this morning, David modeled for us this movement from anguish to assurance and this prayer of lament. And we'll see how, see how under four headings. First, we'll see God's silence in our anguish. Second, faith in its instincts. Third, bring your arguments to God. And then lastly, the assurance Advent anchors in the soul. So God's silence in our anguish. Verses 1 and 2. From the start, we get the sense, we see that David is weary. He pulls us deep into his anguish, and he is triply in trouble. Do you see that? His anguish isn't simple. And if you're honest, your anguish isn't simple either. His trouble is with God at first. 
How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? His trouble is with God. His trouble is also with self. How long must I take counsel of my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day? Then lastly, it's with his enemies. How long shall my enemy exalt himself over me or prevail over me? So to get psychoanalytical, if, if you're into that sort of thing, David could be said that his anguish is theological, psychological, and sociological. But weary souls really, really need to hear cl- clinical definitions and terms, right? His, his problem is with God. His problem is with self. His problem is with the fact that he's surrounded by enemies. Now, which of these three is the most painful? Do you think? The first one. That God is silent. In his little book on prayer, Philip Yancey, he tells the story of an Air, of an Air Force officer who suffered a severe spinal injury. Severe. From the, from the chest down, he couldn't move. He was bound to a wheelchair. And he had many complications with the surgeries and muscle spasms and infections and steel rods implanted in his spinal column. But the officer said that that wasn't the worst part. The most severe pain was that God's presence was withdrawn. The officer said he went on praying, believing and believing, but there was no sense of God's presence. You see, being paralyzed is one thing, but being abandoned by God is far, far different. It's far worse. I'm also reminded of the story in, 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 um, in Joseph's narrative in, in Genesis. Remember when he's in prison unjustly because Potiphar, Potiphar's wife seduced him and then lied about him? And then he gets sent to jail. He was in jail for two years. And twice he interpreted these dreams of two, a baker and a, and a, and a cook and a cupbearer. And, David, and Joseph said, when you get out, remember me. One dies, the other gets out, and the text says, and he forgot Joseph. Joseph's life hung in the balance, was dependent upon the cupbearer prioritizing Joseph's well-being. But he didn't. And David is saying something very similar here. That God himself has forgotten him. Have you felt that? Have you ever felt that pain? Are you feeling it now? That God has not answered your request, that he's absolutely turned his face from you and left you to figure things out on your own. Because that's, that's the second ingredient to this problem here. Do you see that? He says, they take, now because God has forgotten him, that God has turned his back on him, turned his face on him and hidden from him, he says, now I must take up counsel of my own soul. And he must do it while he, he struggles with, with depression and anguish daily, sorrow in his heart. What does he mean? Well, he means that he conjures up possible options and solutions to his troubles. He's consumed with all these proposed scenarios. He has plan A, and if plan A doesn't work out, he has plan B. And if plan B doesn't work out, he has plan C, but they're all dead ends. And I think we do the same thing in our anguish, don't we? And sometimes we take up sinful options. We may put on the stoic posture and then layer it with some, with some theology. We'll say things like, if I just don't get too emotional about it, I can handle it. 
God is in control. That's option A. Or option B, we pull the fatalism card. This is just the way things are. It's unavoidable. It's God's will. Or the moralism card. We blame ourselves. It must be my fault. So if I can just fix what I've done, maybe it will go away. Maybe God will respond to me then. Or we dive headfirst into hedonism. The infinite social media scroll, the constant intake of entertainment. Maybe it's food, maybe it's sexual pleasure, it's work, money, alcohol, parties, hobbies, anything, anything to drown out the noise and to numb the pain. But do we see that here? No. David is none of these things. He's neither stoic, taking up this holy posture, this pious posture. Nor is he a fatalist, a moralist, or a hedonist. He's just roughly and rawly honest. He points a finger at God here. And he says, why have you forgotten me? But you get the sense that the situation is, is far worse because four times David asked this question. How long? Four times. And as I said before, God isn't punctual. So what is David wrestling with there? He's wrestling with the Lord's delays. Whichever option David pursues, it's not working. It's dead ends. There's no, no peace has come from it. He hasn't found any. And the danger in our anguish is not that we will blow out, but wear out from the sheer weight of our anguish. And I've seen men, women of all ages lose their vigor in life. Maybe you've seen it too. You look in someone's eyes and you see the light's gone from them. They become so numb to the pain and so exhausted from the fight that the only thing that brings any sort of relief is indifference. If I just avoid it, it will go away. Or anger. You hoard up anger with nowhere for it to go. What about you? How do you deal with your anguish? How do you pray when life is chaotic and unfair? Do you take it to God or somewhere else? Do you cast all your burdens on God, even if God himself is your burden? Well, David does something in verses 3 and 4 that on the surface looks very illogical, very illogical. But it's, it's quite instinctual. In verses 1 and 2, we see David facing squarely the anguish he has toward God. In verses 3 and 4, we see his faith respond in a sort of knee-jerk reaction. So let's look at it. Faith and his instincts. So if you notice here, David just isn't a man in anguish. His anguish isn't the only tool in his arsenal. He's not just angry. He's not just angry. His, angu his anguish is alloyed with faith. And I mentioned it before, but notice his cries not simply to the heavens, nor does he store up his anguish in his heart. He unleashes it upon the Lord. But he adds a sweetness to it. Notice what he says in verse, right there in verse 3. Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. O Lord, my God. 
He says, the, he says the Lord is my Lord. He cries out to the Lord, not as some distant deity, but in the most intimate of terms. Let me give you an example. Uh, a number of years ago, I was talking to, uh, I was, after church, I was talking to one of the elders of the church, and he himself was an older man. And I noticed that his wife of 50 plus years wasn't present at service that Sunday. So after church, we're talking. I said, so-and-so, where is your significant other? And he looked at me with the wisdom of 50 plus years of marriage. And he says, you mean my wife? You mean my wife? No, he wasn't confused of who I meant. He was saying, no, my wife is not an other. She's my wife. Someone that I've known for 50 plus years, somebody that I love, somebody that I trust. That's what he's saying. So he schooled me in love, but he also was saying something about that cherished pronoun, mine. That when we look at the Lord himself, we can say in faith that the Lord is my Lord. He's not some distant deity, some distant force that just answers my request. No, he is mine, and I can speak of him in the most intimate of terms. That the one that I wrestle with is the one that I love, and the one that I trust loves me too. So notice how the psalm flows, though. It's, like I said, it's, it has a sort of logical disconnect. He's just said the Lord has forgotten him and hidden his face. And you get the sense that David has been praying this prayer for a long time, a very long time. But he keeps praying. He keeps, he keeps bemoaning a God that's forgotten him. And yet he looks at God and says, consider and answer me. God, you've forgotten me, but answer me. It's quite lousy logic. If someone is ignoring you, why would you keep pressing them? But I would say here, it's excellent faith. It's excellent faith. There may be times when faith doesn't have its reasons, but it has its instincts. It has its instincts. And I've, I've heard many stories like this, but there's one story of Charles Spurgeon. Again, he, he, there's this woman in his church who always wrestled with her faith. She believed she had no hope. So he, and he, he called her Mrs. Always Afraid, Mrs. Much Afraid. Oh, that, that's what he nicknamed her. Which is much afraid. I would never do that to any of you, I promise, <laughs> to write a book and nickname you something like that. But this point is that she was always afraid of her salvation, never, always wrestling with it. Well, one day she came up to him and said, they were talking, she said, I have no hope. Now, this is a woman who's been, who had been in this church for years and who showed all the fruits of repentance and faith. So he replied in his typical way, Stop coming to chapel then. We don't want hypocrites here. Then he followed the question, what, why do you come? And she replied, I come because I can't stay away. I love the people of God. I love the house of God. I love the worship of God. So Spurgeon assured her, you have hope, you have faith. Well, then again, he goes on, they're talking, he presses her, do you have hope? And she says, no, I don't. I don't have hope. So he pulls out five pounds from his wallet and he says, listen, this is all I have. I will give you this if you give me all the hope you have. And she said, I wouldn't sell my hope for a thousand worlds. And then Spurgeon, he quips. Even though she told him that she had no hope, she wouldn't sell it for a thousand worlds. Sometimes our instincts assume what our words deny. 
the very fact that he is, that the psalmist here is crying out to God and then he presses further, my God, shows that the psalmist still has hope. Shows the instinct. It's like this knee-jerk reaction. Kids, you know what, you know, you know what reflexes are. If you've ever gotten, been, been in the hospital and the doctor says, here, I'm, I'm going to hit your knee, and he hits it and your, your knee kicks. That's what David said. That's what's, that's what's happening to David here. Life has hit him hard, and what's his reaction? Cry out the Lord, even if it's the Lord who seems to have forgotten him. And that's precisely the untidy messiness and reality of faith. And this ought to challenge us. Because I think we in our circles, we prefer the iron rationality, tidy logic, premise upon premise that equals a clear conclusion that can't be refuted. But David doesn't give us that. He doesn't give us iron logic because in some sense that can be oppressive. It leaves no room for infinity. It leaves no room for, for God and his mysterious ways. It leaves no room for God and how his love actually often works. And when it comes to the hard places in life, it actually gives us no place to rest our hopes. Or better yet, no place even to fight for it. Do you fight for hope? What we see here is not a sweet resting, but a bloody fight for God to act. Even when God and life seem to be against him, he fights on. He won't let go. That is faith's instincts. But he, he does more with, it, with this faith. He brings his arguments to God. Do you notice verse, verse 3b and 4? He has one request. Oh, Lord, light up my eyes that I may not sleep the sleep of death. Light up my eyes. What does he mean by that? He basically means give me that fresh vigor so I can see with fresh eyes and fresh energy what is going on, that you are present and that I can endure. That's what he's, that's what he's asking for, to give him fresh energy so he, can, so he can endure these trials. But David does more. He piles on arguments on why God should grant his request. The first argument has to do with his fate. Lord, light in my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest I die. The second has to do with his shame. Lord, light out my eyes, lest my enemies say that I prevailed over him and my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Do you see what he's doing there? He's basically saying, Lord, if I'm shamed, if I'm shamed by my enemy, you're shamed. You're shamed. Because it will prove to the enemy that you are not strong enough to help. That you're too weak. But there's one thing from this I really want us to see. The very fact that David uses arguments in his petition. Again, how do you pray when life is chaotic and unfair and your heart is broken and it's in anguish? And I fear, and I, I confess this, that I, I can be far too polished in my theology. Far too polished. And I can often have this caricature of God's sovereignty that is stifling the faith. It's the kind of caricature that makes sovereignty look and act more like fate, to be honest. It's just going to happen. Nothing's going to change. It's God's will. You know, 
That may be true. I, I, you know, if, if, if I got a, a, a diagnosis that I had cancer, I can't change the fact that I have cancer. I may not be able to change my awkward circumstances. And to that, yes, I must lean into his sovereignty. But if, 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 I, if I press you even more, it's not raw sovereignty that you hope in. You're not just asking God to help. You're asking him to continue to be good to you. Again, his sovereignty is not just a force. It's backed by a loving person. We want God to comfort us in our affliction. And if we're honest, it's in our affliction. It's not that our sense of sovereignty, of his sovereignty is threatened, but our sense of his goodness. And here David is saying, Yahweh's goodness is at stake. So he presses reasons upon reasons upon reasons and argues with God. Do you argue with the Lord? Can you pray to God and give him reasons why he should respond to you? Or do you rush to the conclusion without really believing it? Can you pray, Lord, help me. Here's why you should help me. Here's why you should do it. Or does your theology of God not allow for that? Because if it doesn't, I don't know what we do with this text. Yes, I know we can rush. We can rush headlong to Jesus. And there's a lot there that we could say about it. And that is beautiful. And we'll get there. But I think we missed the point. Yes, Jesus is the answer. He is. But when you are riddled with cancer, when your marriage is falling apart, when you're afraid of death, when you've lost your job, or maybe you're a mother with a new child and you're alone and depressed, how is Jesus the answer? We're going to get there, but I don't want us to rush there. And so we just slap on Jesus to our problems and it just goes away. Cast your anguish on God, even if it's God who's causing you anguish. So far, we've looked at how David deals with God's silence, how his faith is gritty and has this instinctual nature to it. And we've just looked at how he presses upon God arguments. But something shocking happens in, from verses 1 to 4 and we, well, how we the transition into 5 and 6. He finds assurance. He finds assurance. Look at what he says. I just want to read it. Look at what he says. That transition, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. How did he get there? He had just looked at God and said, God, why have you forgotten me? Why have you hidden your face from me? Why is my enemy rejoicing over me and you don't do anything? Light in my eyes and let me give you the reasons why. And then the transition, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. Where does that hope come from? Well, the, the, the way the psalm is written, it should be shocking. It's, that's the whole point. It's, it's meant to spark some, some sort of surprise. But what's even more shocking is right there. 
in verse 13. What does he trust in? Steadfast love. It's the Hebrew word for hesed. You've heard it from this pulpit many times whenever that word comes up. The Hebrew word for hesed, steadfast love. Sometimes it's translated as, as, as mercy or love or loving kindness. But here we have steadfast love. And it should be this. Steadfast love, anytime you see it, it should be seen as a miracle. One of the first times we see steadfast love is when, is when Moses is, in the, is, is receiving the, the Ten Commandments from the Lord. And down below, the people of Israel are, 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 are creating a, a vile idol that they're worshiping, the golden calf. And the Lord is angry with them. So what does Moses do? He, inter- he intercedes for the people. And the last thing you respect a divine, holy God to do would be to double down on his love. To double down on his commitment. Well, that's what he does because he tells Moses that I am a God full and rich in hesed. That was his response. And there's a real sense that anytime we see this word, steadfast love, mercy, I, can, I think I can say this. It shouldn't exist. It's a miracle. That a holy God will look at sinful people who rebel against him in thought, word, and deed, and he doubled down on his love. Double down on it. That's what it means, steadfastness. It's shocking. It should be shocking. Every time we hear that word, God had mercy on me, don't assume that it's just one of the Christian things. No, it is the miracle of all miracles that you and I could stare in the face of God and him have mercy on you. But it's not just a miracle. We get the sense that it's also a surprise. When does he find and discover this steadfast love? It's not when his problem is resolved. We get no sense that his enemies are gone. David discovers the steadfast love of the Lord in the deepest and most difficult time in his life. So it's both a miracle and a surprise. Let me give a, a, a brief, another biblical example on what, on what I mean. So quickly, there's a story in, in the Old Testament of Jacob, and he's, he finds himself one night running away from his uncle and terrified of, of his confrontation with the brother that he had just deceived in Esau. So he's in the woods one night, and this random, mysterious individual jumps him. And they are in a tussle all night long, this mysterious figure, all night long. And the sense we get from this, this is a knockdown, drag-out fight. Punches are blown, are thrown. Bruises are had. Noses are bloodied. There is, this is a fight. All night. And as the sun rises, this mysterious figure it says he realized that he could not overcome Jacob. So he touches his hip and dislocates Jacob's hip. So David there is on the ground clinging to this individual. And the man says, let go of me. And Jacob says, not until you bless me. And the man blesses him. The man blesses him. And what, it's what... Jacob says next, that is a miracle. Jacob says, I'm going to name this place Penuel because 
I have stared in the face of God and I lived. And I lived. Notice what just happened. We get the steadfast Hesed, where Jacob looks in the face of God and lives, and then he gets the blessing. I find that to be so marvelous as I ponder what Advent means. It's that you and I can stare in the face of God and live because Christ stared into the face of divine justice, the judge of all the earth, and did not live. And did not live. He did receive mercy. We did. Those who have placed their faith in him. But it's, it's more than that. The incarnation is not just his, it's not just his cross, but it's also his sufferings. Because in his sufferings, what do we see? We see somebody, a divine, the divine second head of the Trinity can look at you and show you his wounds and say, I know what you're going through. So in the cross, we see, we, can, we look into divine justice and we don't find a frowning face of a judge. We find the smiling face of a father. And in his sufferings, we find a brother who can empathize with you in your sufferings, in your agony. Who, who he himself took upon him, his own lips, the cries of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But his cross and his sufferings are just part of the story. His cross says you're forgiven, and his wounds say I understand, but that doesn't do much for the one who's learned that they have cancer or that his spouse or their spouse is leaving them. Or that their life or family is falling apart. You see, the, the fullness of the gospel, the, or I can put it this way, the, the, the fullness of the good news of Hesed, the steadfast love of the Lord, it's not just that he suffered and that he died, but that he rose. Because his resurrection tells you in your anguish that your anguish does not have the last word. It does not have the last word. And that's the beauty of the resurrection. Is that in your suffering, yes, the Lord may not be answering you in this particular moment, but he has spoken clearly and loudly. You have a father who smiles at you. You have a brother who's near you. And you have a Savior now who reigns supreme on high, having defeated death. That is the, that's the ground of our assurance. That's how deep it goes. That's what I can take with me into my own darkness. Is the very fact, yes, God may be silent now, but he's, he's not completely silent. He has said something true and profound. Is revolutionary to the soul. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to CPC Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you liked this show, consider a five-star rating, share it with your friends, or write to us at podcast at cpcnewhaven.org.